a snowboarding instructor of mine said this phrase to me, obviously looking at uh, the fear of death in my eyes. Yep. Uh, well, we're just about <laughs> to go down a black run. And he said, the fear that we suffer is often worse than the suffering we fear. My name's Mike Lander, and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in partnership with The Drum, where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors. Jonathan, thanks ever so much for joining us on The Drum's negotiation uh, podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I think it's testament to your negotiation skills that you've persuaded me to do this. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you to give up your time, Jonathan. It's really kind of you. And uh, it, as as we said, it's a bit of a chat. We'll have a discussion around some topics, um, and you've kindly sent some notes in advance. So let's kind of kick off with just a bit of background about yourself, um, your role, and it, anything unusual or a passion that you've got. Sure. So uh, I'm the uh, managing director of uh, George P. Johnson UK. So one of the world's leading event and experiential agencies, predominantly specialising in business to business. We cover a large range of clients within that sphere. Traditionally, the uh, agency was founded out of uh, Detroit. So I've got a long history with the automotive industry, but more Uh recently with uh, sort of West Coast tech, uh, so big uh, global uh, tech companies. Uh, but a broad, broad range of uh, clients, but predominantly business to business. Okay. And I guess, I, I mean, not that we've talked about this before, but I guess it's been an interesting three months then, uh, given that you've got quite a lot of clients in the tech sector. Yeah, I think, but specifically the, our area of operation, because we're so inextricably linked to like a lot of route to markets for our clients. And then over the last couple of years, obviously, there's been massive restriction in, in route to market for our industry and sector exactly. specifically, that we're still on a bit of a comeback trail. So while uh, you know you've you know seen a lot of the news in in that sector specifically and uh, changes that they're making to their organisations and restructure, yep, it's not as impacted uh, kind of our side of the business yet because we're still we're very much focused on the on the kind of commercial side, not yeah, necessarily yeah. the uh, uh, the kind of broad range of product service offerings that they've got that they're sort of uh, cutting back on. And I still say as a sector, we're still behind the curve you know we're still on our on our way back so uh, still experience growth very good so let's get into the questions um so um do you have any examples of negotiations where uh, both parties placed equal emphasis on the longer term relationship as well as the substance of the actual negotiation and kind of like you know what i would call truly collaborative uh, negotiations yeah i've got a good example of this recently actually we had a long-standing relationship with a global client uh, started a relationship with them about sort of kind of first sort of seven years ago and during that period we'd had like one re-round of uh of negotiation to kind of extend that contract and we were coming towards the end of a definite uh, period where normally their procurement rules would require us to uh, re-pitch for yeah. that business and and partly because they've got a uh, government state investment, I would say the client is, I'm sure no, people no, will be furiously looking at our website, trying to guess. <laughs> but one of the reasons that we, uh, we've we got this long-standing relationship with them is because of our global infrastructure, that we do have a genuine global footprint and therefore are able to uh, deliver for them in a unique way, I would say, compared to competitors. So we had this really 
positive, but in brackets, I would say unusual. It doesn't happen to us every day where a really constructive conversation with their uh, procurement about uh, how we could not follow their normal procurement protocols because ah. of the unique, the unique nature of our business. Yeah. So we collaborated together on how we could present that back to the business to ensure that we were uh, compliant against all their terms by providing evidence of uh, kind of unique uh, partnership that we had that we were not easily transferable to uh, another partner. Yeah. And it it was a real example of like true collaboration. I mean, there were elements of it which were quite complicated in terms of in some regions and markets, we have to have sort of partnership agreements to do some of the fulfillment. Yeah. And we had to discuss how we could still make that compliant by making it a sort of like a constellation sort of uh, brand's status. So rather than uh, uh, some of the partners that we used being a supplier, they were kind of part of of us by terms of the contract. Okay. And it was kind of a really sort of positive constructive process you know it wasn't a, it wasn't a kind of a given it wasn't because the relationship no. you know had any challenges to it it was just that we had to ensure that we dotted the i's and crossed the t's to uh, be able to get this over the line and they, and they could see that in terms of like the value of the partnership and again it's just not not being being able to be uh swapped out that easily there was you know there was incentive on their on their side to try and overcome some of what would be like procedural matters i would say so a couple of things, and obviously as an ex-procurement guy, I'm fascinated mm. by this. So, <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of the beauties of these conversations is yeah. you find things out and then you go down uh, rabbit holes, which is just mm-hmm. interesting. Um, so how much do you think the the relationship that your team had built with the client over the kind of the previous you know, year, two years, three years was instrumental in driving that sense of collaboration? Uh, I mean, I think very instrumental because uh, it, it it meant that we had a what I would describe as a, an agency's voice uh, within the within the client within the client business. It was well yeah. understood how we how we operated, how we partnered with them, almost from an infrastructure perspective. And I think as, as soon as you establish a relationship with a with a client where it's well understood that you you're you're really a part of their business, that sort of changes the position slightly. And then also, we always had a close relationship with procurement through the longevity of that relationship, through uh, quarterly business reviews. Exactly. Uh, uh, a company representative being part of that process. So while the procurement team were involved, are involved in a large or broader breadth of types of purchasing, they don't necessarily understand the depth of detail of our of our of our business. You know, they could yeah. be going out of our meeting and then uh, procuring something completely different to do with supply chain. Over the time and o- over those meetings, they got a really good feel for what differentiated us and the value of, of that differentiation. So, just on that point, uh, and we'll move on, move on to the next question in a second. But um, having, I always say to you know clients, friends, other agency leaders that I talk to. Having procurement as part of the QBR process, I see as being a huge benefit rather than being a problem or a challenge. Because if if procurement understand, I mean, one, if procurement turn up to the QBR, it's because it's important. I.e., yeah. the spend is important. It's big. Uh, it's relevant, um, and procurement therefore need a voice at the table. If procurement are involved in the QBRs, by the time you get to a renegotiation. They're very well versed in the service that you offer, the value that you add, the scope of the services, 
where the efficiencies come from, how you manage mm-hmm. risk. It makes the conversation much more collaborative. I think if they're out of the loop for three years and then you bring them back in, much harder to get them to be a collaborative partner at that stage. Uh, in other situations where, say, that's happened before and uh, procurement has been uh, you know, uh, distant, yeah. We you know we found that the people that you negotiated like three years ago are not the same people that you get right. around the table. Uh, so you're kind of starting from uh, from not quite from scratch because you, you you know the business, but still you're having to recover or, or go over old ground. Exactly. So uh, next question, or else we'll talk about this for ages, as I would. Um, <laughs> any kind of funny moments in negotiations you'd like to share? Uh, well. Uh, previous to uh, George B. Johnson, I was at uh, Ogilvy Group for a, uh, a long period of time. I was head of sport. Ah. So I sat in the middle of uh, kind of brands and uh, sporting rights holders. And yeah. obviously, they're in a sort of central point of negotiation. You're trying to, uh, predominantly, we were representing the brand, but trying to understand the rights holder to uh, see what see what assets we could uh, in, involve as part of the negotiation that I don't necessarily think or necessarily like gravitate towards as being the most valuable but we were trying to find ways to to you know borrow the equity of those rights to yeah. help promote the brand i may want to come uh, back to you on that by the way as a separate yeah, topic yeah. yeah yeah sure yeah absolutely uh but i mean i'll let you judge whether it's a funny anecdote or not i shouldn't really say it's funny should i <laughs> uh, let the audience decide uh but as, as as part of that, this sounds like an apoc- apocryphal story. Uh, but there was uh, a, a Premier League club who, uh, let's just say, they've uh, they've had better days, right? At the current time, and uh, they were negotiating with uh, uh, players, and uh, it sort of makes me laugh. You know, you sort of like understanding your Zopa. Well, here, here right. is an here is an example of. Uh, there was absolutely no understanding of Zopa on one side of parties. So, uh, <laughs> and by the way, for the audience that are listening, Zopa zone of possible agreement. Yeah, and uh, the football club offer uh, an opening gambit of, uh, of of a weekly wage, which for you know, for for us on the call or anybody listening is is going to be insane money anyway. Exactly. Uh, but they went in with such a initial opening offer that the agent and the player both coughed. <laughs> And then the club immediately went, okay, okay, we really want them. And they doubled it. But the reason wow. that they the reason that they coughed was because they couldn't believe that they were being offered that much. <laughs> and it's like it's one of those stories that I, I tell it now, people go, oh, you know, it's just, you know, it's one of those stories that sort of lives on, but it's not true. But I, I know people very, very close absolutely uh, to that situation. Uh so it absolutely is true. But it's a good example of anchoring. Price anchoring is everything. We're yeah. going to come on to that next in a second. I've got a, the, the opposite story, which I talk about, which is, again, well-researched. It's online. A guy called John Lester, um, who was an uh, American um, baseball player uh, and uh, played for the Red Sox, and how that negotiation went wrong. And that's on a, a separate episode. But um, that's worth looking at as well, about how it can go horribly wrong in the sports world and how anchoring is everything. But also, as is research, understanding your market to make mm-hmm. sure you pitch it at exactly the right level. So, and talking of anchoring, um, so what's your experience of when your kind of counterparty sets a price really high or low um, at the start out of the starting gate? Is that the sports one, or is another is is there another one as well? Well, 
I mean, it does, it does sort of happen in the, the sports world predominantly because it's kind of like market benchmarking. Yes. You've seen it with Manchester United at the moment. I mean, that's a negotiation in public, but not yeah. public. Uh, and, that, and that happens a lot in terms of, right, oh, they're looking, for six, they're looking for six billion. And do we think that that's actually what they're sitting around the table negotiating on? Probably not. But that's that point is anchored. And that, and that happens... That happens across the industry. So therefore, uh, and you, you normally uh, saw this uh, in the sports world with uh, rights deals for uh, front of shirt sponsorship, right? Uh, because there's a like, bit of brinkmanship of like X club got this amount, therefore we're yeah, yeah. better than them. So, uh, exactly. so you see that you see that a lot. Uh, but I still see it in, uh, in in our sector now that I'm I'm, I'm working at, and you know it tends to be for some of the big global. Uh, programs that we run is that ultimately there'll be a figure in mind of which we're, which we're starting from to negotiate. Yep. And my view on anchoring is it it depends on uh, the long longevity. I think if if you're if you're if you've got price anchoring and it's just for a one off project or deal, yep. you're in a very you're in a very difficult position. Yes. Uh, because it sort of directs the negotiations uh, to a very narrow parameter, and it's hard to get out of that. Yep. But I think if you've got a, a long-standing relationship, or your, or it's a, a more longer-term deal, my view is that you you have to find a way to uh, see the negotiation as a as a journey. So, in other words, what you're anchored against in year one, think about how you progress past that. Yeah. So it's not a kind of win or lose. Exactly. Certainly in year one, you've got to think about it as a progression. So you you might not be able to overcome all points immediately. Yes. And, and that tends to be how I approach these is think of the thing think of the long game because if you if you put all of the uh, energy and emphasis and result on a singular point on this anchored point uh, yeah. it, it really narrows down where you can get success and it might not be that you don't get success year one but if you if you kind of start the journey to see the change in that anchored point for year two it, it's 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 one way definitely around it absolutely and in fact um Someone on another episode uh, a couple of weeks ago said um, exactly the same thing um, with a slightly different um, or, or, or an expanded nuance, which was you build a roadmap. And so what they were saying was exactly what you're saying, which is if it's a three-year deal, you just build a roadmap of value mm-hmm. whereby in year one, it may be that because it's a new service or a new opportunity, there is risk on your side as a supplier that you may be prepared to take because there's more benefit in year two and year three. Mm-hmm. As long as that uh, equation's balanced, then um, don't try and claim everything uh, in year one, as you say. I think it's very wise. Yeah. I think the other thing I find fascinating about sports negotiations and, in fact, um, political negotiations, which I think is uh, an error often or is done on purpose, when a public statement's made in the press as an anchor it's really hard for the other for the other side because one side can't back down. So you make these public statements, and I would my my advice would be be very cautious about making big public statements because if you've got to back down from that statement and change the number and the shape of the deal, how do you save face? And as human beings, we like to save face. So I'm not a fan of making big public statements about numbers or lengths of contracts. Because if you're put at the beginning of the negotiations, 
I think it can make life very difficult. Yeah, so it's certainly an area where you, you probably see more, uh, oh, somebody close to negotiation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's been a leak. Oh, really? Yeah. There's been a leak, has there? It wasn't a controlled leak by any chance, was it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it makes a, it does make it a, 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 a complex world. But then, but then also, I do, I do think in that space, uh, people forget forget very quickly. Uh, uh, they which, do. Is, which is another advantage. Yeah, there's always another deal around the corner. Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah. Batners, uh, let's talk about Batners and about having a uh, a best alternative. You know, why is it so important, and how do you, as an agency, create um, options so that if a deal isn't the right shape, you've got the ability to walk away. Just take some experience of that. I think this is why preparation is really key. And I don't know that sounds completely obvious. Oh yeah, if you prepare, but it's amazing how it's not just preparing the detail. You've got to prepare your mindset. Uh-huh. Be- yeah. Because if you're not, you know, a batner doesn't become a bad thing because what you're doing is you're walking away from something which is not going to be for right for whatever reasons that you've, uh, you've determined. Yeah. And then because we've got like finite, finite assets in terms of people, you, you're going to be target, you know, you'll be pointing those people at something more valuable. Exactly. So you've just got to understand as well that what you go into it that and and maybe the the partner doesn't mean that you don't have a relationship. It could be that something comes out of it that's different than than what you started with. Yep. But but I think the the sort of preparation side of it is absolutely key of uh, working out what the position might be if if it doesn't come into fruition. And there's this. Is, there's a bit of a flip side. Uh, well, I don't know if it's the flip side, but you can tell me. Uh, often when negotiating uh, deals, uh, and, and certainly I see this in, in our world as well, where uh, in, in the B2B world where uh, a client might be partnering with either uh, an, an event or creating their own event, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of side of a button, which I think is the exit strategy. They're like what what happens when you don't do this anymore? Yes, and it, and it's that same principle of uh, of thinking ahead about scenarios that might not actually come into fruition. But it does it really helps with the mindset of the negotiation if you can work out what those scenarios are. Uh, Absolutely, and it was fine that people were really surprised when we were negotiating uh, with with any partnership. That what does it look like when you end? Yeah, before you've even started, that used to get really confused people. But it's really yep. important that you can kind of set the the terms of uh, of what happens if you don't have a partnership. Exactly, which is kind of a sort of similar mindset to to partner. I I, I think. I think you're right, uh, and I think what this also plays to is that whole emotional preparation and the anxiety. How do you manage mm, yeah, anxiety? Yeah. Well, you manage anxiety by being well prepared and thinking through scenarios. And men- I love the idea of like you know mentally, if you think about the end point and work it out before you even start, it it makes it less anxiety forming. Yeah. So I think it's all about how you prepare mentally when you walk into the negotiation and as you go through the negotiation. Because if we don't have realistic options, we know in life what it feels like. If you feel cornered, you're going to feel anxious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, here's an unusual story. I don't. But yeah. a, a snowboarding instructor of mine said this phrase to me, obviously looking at uh, the fear of death in my eyes. 
Yep. Uh, well, we're just about to go down a black run. And he said, the fear that we suffer is often worse than the suffering we fear. The fear that we suffer is often worse than the suffering we Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It be- and it becomes paralyzing because, uh, you know, in, in that instance, you you know, you're about to go over the edge and you think, I'm going to die. But generally, you're not. So, you're not. Uh, but, 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 you know, and I, I think that's the same with negotiation. You know, you have to be careful not to go into it with this sort of feeling of, of fear and that, and that becomes, that's right. you know, paralyzing. Uh, and, you know, any, anything sort of psychological like that, it's, it's often the, the feeling that you go through is actually worse than what could happen. And if you think about what the outcomes might be, different scenarios of that and become Absolutely. more at ease with them, then uh, it puts you in a much more advantageous position just in terms of mindset. It does, because also when you're at the negotiating table and those scenarios turn up, you, you don't feel anxious because you've prepared. You know mm. what that looks like. And I think that's a huge thing when in terms of negotiation experience is if there are five things that might happen and you prepare mentally for all five, there might be a curveball, but you covered most of the bases probably. There's something in sport, which you'll know as well, uh, the sports analogy of when, uh, I think certainly in golf and tennis, when you imagine where the ball's going to land. And it's the same thing. If you imagine where the negotiation is going to land and you work out the route to get there, sure, it's going to be different on the day because the con- the conditions will be different. But at least you'll have a sense of where am I aiming for? Yeah. Yeah. So, Jonathan, given the time, a conclusion, your top two or three tips for any brand or agency leader uh, about negotiating commercial deals, especially in the current market. I, th- I think the one we just kind of talked about there, so I won't over elaborate on it. It's just it's just preparation. Yeah. It's kind of an easy word to say, but it's it's it takes time to uh, get the information and the evidence behind it and the mindset behind it. But it's something that you should never forget to put that time in. And it's the worst thing that experience can sometimes mean that you shortcut things, but you know, just my advice to like never shortcut it. Just exactly put, right. put all the effort into it. Obviously, I like an analogy, don't I? As you can tell. But it, uh, the, fr- the phrase about if, you know, got 30 minutes to chop down a tree, spend 20 minutes sharpening your axe. Correct. Uh, which is absolutely true in negotiation. My second point is think about extended value. What I mean by that is that there might be an opportunity to include something in the negotiation that the other party doesn't think has the same amount of value or doesn't think has a value now. For an event, that could be something to do with uh, early access to a venue or, or late exit from a venue or a uh, other elements of space which they don't they don't think have value certainly in, in in the sports world which traditionally it was all to do with media value so where yeah. what's the where, where are you getting your logo placed on the on the tv or the coverage but there's other assets that you could you could get hold of that could be like access to people insight anything you could use back in your world which didn't require effort from the rights holder that's right and anything that doesn't require effort from a client or yep. a partner or a venue can still have value, but to them, they might not be thinking about it in the same way because there's no effort right. for them. And then uh, I think this goes back to the, the point about relationship with the procurement is never assume value is understood by everybody you're negotiating with. Yeah. Uh, and I know that you, you often say that, uh, the, you know, the difference between selling and negotiating, but still sometimes in the negotiation, you might have to sell a little bit to help people understand what yeah. you're negotiating on. Because oftentimes the, when you've got to that point of getting it over the line, you've had a long period of discussion with the people who understand the value, and then you're getting into the, the detail of uh, well, the commercials. The, the commercials. 
And I think what you do outside of that is to ensure that any influencers in that negotiation, not on your, on your team, on, on their team, who can help influence yeah. and uh, and push that understanding of value for your benefit and for their benefit, clearly, is really helpful. So that would be the, the final thing that I would say. And I think, you know, my, uh, my spin on that would be uh, rather than saying for me, selling, it would be educating. Is yeah. that sometimes you have to educate your counterparty during the negotiations just to go back a step before you can move forward a step. Yeah. And I see that a lot in negotiations, definitely, where we forget the value creation because mm-hmm. we're too focused on the payment terms, the price, the scope, the IP rights, the contract length, termination rights, all that good stuff. And then you've got to link it back to, well, what's the value creation? Jonathan, it's been amazing, as I knew it would be. So thank you ever so much for joining the Drums Marketing Negotiations podcast. Uh, Where can people find out more about you and George P. Johnson? Yeah, yeah. So you can check out our website, gpj.com. It has our uh, global website access there. So you can find out more about the UK specifically or or the global group. Anybody wants to link in with me, they can find me quite easily on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Jonathan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.